Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, live for the first time in a long time. That's right, Justin and I are in the same room together in Justin's beautiful new apartment. I'm looking at Justin's film scanner right behind him with a big uh, big reel of Ron Orman's King of the Bullwhip on it. I've watched this third reel of the film at least 20 times at this point. <laughs> That's more than Ron Orman ever watched that movie. <laughs> and we're doing this live episode to talk about someone that we need to go through together, Will, because that, neither of us are confident about this topic. Well, that's true. I mean, you and I, we are just medium smart men, and here we are dealing with one of the most intimidating art house filmmakers of all time. That's right. It's the novelist, the intellectual Marguerite Duras. And what's interesting about Marguerite Duras is that she doesn't really have that one movie that everybody has seen. I mean, India Song is probably her most famous one, mm -hmm. but it doesn't get talked about in the same way that her contemporaries in French cinema. Usually when she gets discussed, it's like, whoa, boy, that's a tough one. I think she is best known as a literary figure. Yeah, part of the new novel that came about in, oh, I don't know the exact year that it happened, but it was like Alain Robbe-Grier, who would also screenwrite uh, Last Year in Marion Bad. And have you ever read any new novels? Well, I read The Lover by Marguerite Duras, but not recently. And that one was written in 1984. I was very surprised at how far it was mm -hmm. in her career, because earlier on, she had novels like Moderato Cantabile, The Ravishing of Lal Stein. And, you know, the new novel is all about breaking down the form of what literary can be. So, for example, some of the Alain Regrier novels that I read, it means you don't know who the protagonist is. There's no plot. There's a lot of description of spaces. And... She brought that kind of attitude to the movies that she made, the idea of being able to disassemble the form of what you expect cinema to be. And that also means that it will be very uh, moving at its own pace, a.k.a. slow. Mm -hmm. There will often be not really that much to grasp on. I saw some video essays where people discuss like, you know, she's all about letting the audience use their imagination <laughs> about what could be happening on screen. So I'm going to tell you the first time I ever heard of Marguerite Duras in any context. I was in grade nine and I read the John Waters book, Crackpot, The Obsessions of John Waters. There's an essay in there where he writes about his favorite art house movies. And he wrote, Miss Duras makes the kind of films that get you punched in the mouth for recommending them to even your closest friends. If there is such a thing as good avant-garde cinema, this is it. Even though I believe pretension is the ultimate sin, Marguerite Duras has taken pretension one level ahead of itself and turned it into a style. I feel like John Waters would probably write differently now than he did then, now that he's like an art world figure himself. Uh, but that is, uh, at least when I was a younger man, how I was prepared to accept Marguerite Duras as like uh, this eccentric, willfully inaccessible art house filmmaker. And prior to this week, the only one of her films as a director that I had seen was uh, The Truck or The Lorry. Le Camion. That's right, which has a premise that sounds kind of like a Warholian joke, where it's her and Gerard Depardieu read from the script of a movie that may never slash will never be made. And it cuts back and forth between that and scenes of a truck driving. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of that truck. And the whole movie is this kind of, uh, I mean, look, I can't I can't talk very well about it now. And the whole movie is this sort of like waiting for Godot style. When is the truck going to get here? <laughs> <laughs> of course, though, her the cinematic achievement that she's best known for is Hiroshima Mon Amour, the cornerstone of, is it officially a French New Wave film? I think it's like a left bank film, mm -hmm. which was its own kind of category, but you can just kind of squish it into the French New Wave as well. 
well. She wrote that film. Alain René directed it. It was released in 1959, the same year as The 400 Blows, a year before Breathless. And along with those movies, it's really uh, often referred to as uh, the the birth of modern cinema. You know, I guess you could also call Star Wars the birth of modern cinema, but this is the birth Double of- Double Bill, <laughs> India Song, Star Wars. Uh, Hiroshima Monomore is the birth of a certain kind of modern cinema. And also this week, we watched her films, Natalie Granger and India Song. And as is often the case with somebody who I was not that familiar with, I am intrigued and I want to know more. Mm, that's what we always say when we tackle one of these auteurs, who their work can definitely be- difficult. You know, oftentimes when we talk about these kind of filmmakers, me and Will try to like press on the listener like, you know, people talk about this filmmaker as a slog and that's not true. There's a lot to be entertained and there's a lot to be entertained in stuff like India Song, but do not watch it before going to bed or in any kind of prone position. <laughs> I, I will say that Marguerite Dura as a director does live up to her reputation for being difficult, mm -hmm. but even so, there is there is much to admire and much audiovisual beauty on display. Both me and Will watch Hiroshima Mon Amour and I think what's the most interesting thing about it in conversation about Dura's career is considering what Alain René brought to the script versus how she would adapt her own work. Now, Marguerite talked about that she did become a director because she was disappointed with the way some of her scripts were filmed. And Alain René, what's interesting about his early career... Not is, this film, surely. No, not definitely okay. not this one. But what's interesting about his career is that a lot of the screenwriters, the way they would write the scripts, it was essentially like to be filmed. Like if you read Alain Robbe-Grier's uh, script for Last Year at Marion Bad, like all the camera moves and stuff are there in the text. So it makes you wonder, well, what did René bring to it other than like guiding the screenwriters as they do their work? And Hiroshima Mon Amour has all of the René kind of trademarks, that kind of poppiness, <laughs> the kind of gliding camera moves that you also saw in a lot of his earlier films when he was making documentaries about like libraries or his very famous Holocaust documentary. You're moving through a space, through time, through these kind of personalities. And it's a very propulsive movement. I guess I agree with what you're saying. That That is what we see in this movie. But my memory of Hiroshima Mon Amour from having just seen it a few days ago for the first time since I was a teenager, by the way. It's one that everybody gets to early on. Everyone gets to it early on, and then they come back to it when they're ready for it mm -hmm. much later. My memory of it from just a few days ago is what a sharp and jagged movie it is. What yeah. a kind of shocking film it is. Like When you say jagged, he likes to like have the camera just kind of like shift really quickly in a scene, almost something that he would associate with like Sam Raimi or Edgar Wright. <laughs> yes, I, I, you now that you mentioned it, yes. Uh, or Eisenstein, who yeah, I think Einstein, was his, his you know. big inspiration. <laughs> And you, when he brings this energy to Duras's text, you get a whole different feel to it than you do in something like India Song, which has very similar vibes, but is in a completely different like space. So the story of Hiroshima Monomore involves an unnamed actress played by Emmanuel Riva, who comes to Hiroshima a little over a decade after the atomic bomb to act in a movie about peace. There, she falls into an affair with a Japanese man, an architect played by Aija. Okada. I think one of the things the movie is doing is addressing the problem of representing an atrocity through art. Yeah, he, she's like, oh, I know all of these things. And he's like, well, you weren't there. You don't know it. Well, that really comes to the fore in the iconic opening scene of the film, which is this cryptic montage, uh, a man and a woman making love, mostly seen through close-ups of flesh and, you know, hands caressing body parts. And it cuts back and forth in really shocking fashion between these images and 
horrific documentary footage of the aftermath of the atomic bomb, as well as a tour through a museum documenting those atrocities. And Duras' writing style, which is short, blunt sentences often, a very rhythmic writing style, but like a sharply rhythmic writing style, informs the editing patterns that Rene uses as a director. And you hear the man and the woman's voice say things like, you saw nothing in Hiroshima. I saw everything. I saw the hospital. I'm sure of it. You saw nothing in Hiroshima. Four times at the museum. What museum in Hiroshima? Four times at the museum in Hiroshima. I saw people walking around. People walk around lost in thought among the photographs, the reconstructions, for lack of anything else. I myself, lost in thought, looked at the scorched metal, the twisted metal, metal made as vulnerable as flesh. And oftentimes the male voice comes in and says, you know, nothing of Hiroshima. And I mean, you know, I, I, I have to say, you know, just cards on the table. I thought this movie was amazing. Like, I, I, I thought, I honestly think this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just like an incredibly powerful movie. To talk about it, actually, I think, like, really runs the risk of making banal everything that's good about it. Because I can say they get to Hiroshima and it's become a tourist trap she doesn't claim to understand it well she does in the opening is that like i know all of this the research has been done yeah. and it's like but you have not experienced yeah. it the opening is not literal the mm. opening is sort of like setting a tone for the rest of the movie and in the movie you see scenes from the set of the movie where you know you'll see peace protesters and you'll see people who have been made up to look like victims of the bombing and so sorry i'm i'm, I'm losing my train of thought but I think the best statement I've seen about the movie is one by Rene himself. He said, my film is time shattered. And I mean, that's pretty much every film that he made. <laughs> exactly. And this one more than anything, because, you know, ultimately, this is a movie. This is, again, a cliche to say, and it makes the film sound banal, but it is a movie about trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a movie about this uh, traumatized town, traumatized people in the town, a traumatized country. And... Uh, trauma is not linear. It's constantly uh, like a knife just piercing you as you're going about your life. And as the film goes on, we learn that the woman is facing her own trauma and mm -hmm. that time starts to shift as she's telling a story and you go in the past, the present, and it's all shifted around for this emotional state to understand. I mean, I say understand. You never really understand any of these characters on screen because they're, it's very elliptical in the way stuff is presented. And it's also very raw in the way that it's presented. It's probably best left to the imagination to some extent. Wait, let me find a Hiroshima Mon Amour explained Reddit thread. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, to some extent, it's best left to the imagination how all of these threads relate to each other, how, you know, the Emmanuel Riva character, her relationship with the German soldier when she was younger, how the trauma of that relates to the trauma of Hiroshima. It's very... <laughs> again, this is a very difficult movie to talk about. Especially, you know... <laughs> There is a, a step to take back as well and be like, wait a minute, wasn't this all made by white people? And they're commenting uh, on well, well, the, the sure, misunderstanding yeah. of Hiroshima. What's interesting about the film is that it does forefront all of those discussions about the idea of Hiroshima, documenting Hiroshima. And then the woman's story is the one that becomes the more dominant thread as it goes along. To your point about white people, I mean, Hiroshima is sort of a it's sort of a human crime. It's a human atrocity. And I mean, the movie is very much about what is it like? for a Westerner to feel moral indignation about this and want to want to convey that moral indignation, want to do justice to it, while also at the same time being obviously incapable of doing that because of their subject position. But it's a failure almost by definition. And, you know, Rene was obviously uh, very much in touch with these issues when he made this movie, when he made Night and Fog as well, 
which is also very much about the challenge of uh, representing atrocity through art. And the film itself grapples with its portrayal of these atrocities because you see footage from Japanese films Mm -hmm. that are documenting Hiroshima and you question yourself, is this newsreel? Is this a narrative film? And you don't really know because all of these images are just hitting you all at once. But you can also understand that René and Dura is a perfect mixing together of, you know, styles that as his first film, he is already very comfortable in his authorial voice. And at this point, she's written a lot of stuff, so she knows exactly how to present it as well. Well, the approach of the film and the movie's attitude towards time was very much a collaboration between the two of them. There's an interview that René did some years later where he said, Marguerite Dura and I had this idea of working in two tenses. The present and the past coexist, but the past shouldn't be flashback. You might even imagine that everything the Emmanuel Riva character narrated was false. There's no proof that the story she recites really happened. On a formal level, I found that ambiguity interesting. Later in the same interview, he talked about his relationship with writers. As you alluded to earlier, he was constantly working with, you know, some of the greatest writers and like Stan Lee when they were going to make a Spider-Man film together? I mean, yes, the <laughs> L.A.R.O. of his time. He said, I'm always in search of special non-realistic language that has musicality. So he definitely thought of the dialogue as being of a stylistic piece with the images and the music and the editing. The dialogue itself is very abstract and it doesn't fit, you know, regular rhythms of the way that people would talk to each other. Now, Hiroshima Monomore is by general consensus the best movie that... Marguerite Duras was involved in, but uh, she did become a film director in her own right after that, made many movies, none of which has quite ascended, I think, to canonical status quite. too difficult. Too difficult, but they may still one day. One day? (laughs) You think that, like, uh, Nathalie Granger will um, jump to, like, Criterion puts it out, it gets more attention. I mean, the version that we watched looked like crap. I don't think there's a good version of it available. First of all, I could see Criterion putting out India Song. So Nathalie Granger was not her first film. Her first film was actually a film called uh, La Musica, made in 1965. And what should be noted about Marguerite Dura is that if she is part of the new wave, if you want to put her in there, she was like the elder statesman because she was 55 years old when she directed her first film. She was only, she was uh, 29 when she published her first novel too. Mm-hmm. So she was a little bit later than some of her contemporaries. And I've seen La Musica and it is definitely more conventional. Like it's shot in a way that is not as challenging as her future films would be. But there's a lot of interest there. And she also... In that film worked with a co-director and she said it was just because she personally was nervous about doing it solo so she got somebody else to do it with her and that's the only reason it wasn't because like she got fired or somebody else came on and it was only really later on that you feel her kind of figuring out what her voice would be i read an interview with her where she said that you know movies for her she likes to do them but she doesn't want to let them be all-encompassing for her so she'll make an application for a grant which is really the only way you can make these kind of movies and if she gets it she gets it if she doesn't she doesn't and if it's really low amount of money then you know she'll make that movie for a really low amount of money and she would get some of the biggest stars in france to be in them gerard depardieu delphine serig jean moreau yep i mean jean moreau and gerard depardieu do appear in nathalie granger and now nathalie granger 
this is a film that if you were making, uh, you know, a movie and you want to show like what a pretentious art film would be, <laughs> you would put Nathalie Granger. It's people speaking in a dull monotone. You don't really have a grasp on what the story is. You think you do. It has something to do with like missing children, perhaps a murderous child as well. I guess that's kind of what it's about. By the way, I really like this movie. I, th- I, I had a good time with this. I will 90 s- minutes? Less, 88. I will just read to you the letterboxed plot synopsis, which I think conveys some of the spirit of the film. <laughs> With little or no embellishment, filmmaker Marguerite Duras offers a simple, often wordless chronicle of a woman's day. She and her friend are seen doing yard work, talking about their families and receiving the occasional visitor. The brightest spot in the day is when a washing machine salesman comes to call period that is the plot synopsis yeah but when you watch the movie like i i read one it doesn't sound like a very like, enticing premise does are it? they witches is something else going on like, yeah and i love this about the movie i love the mood of this movie it's shot in very high 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 contrast black and white the vibes are impeccable the vibes are very much like jean roland or mm. jess franco without the nudity without the nudity or sex yeah just people walking around a house and the ellipses of which there are many in the plot and the style are so bizarre, so strange. And and I think this is a movie not without humor either. Well, Gerard Depardieu comes in and does his one-man show as a vacuum salesman. <laughs> yeah, or a washing machine salesman. A washing machine salesman, could, just could be anything. Film is set in a house. It's occupied by two women and two children. The women are Isabelle, played by Lucia Bosse, and an unnamed woman, played by Jean Moreau. And we don't know the relationship between the two of them. They may be lovers. Uh, Nathalie Granger is the name of uh, Lucia Bose's daughter. That is correct. There are two children, one of whom is Natalie and the other of whom, uh, I guess, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we don't really we don't know, know much. We don't know movie. the relationship between them, but it's clearly a comfortable relationship because they've clearly lived together for a while. When we see them do their wordless chores, they seem very comfortable doing those chores. Well, uh, Duras has talked about that, like, this movie was about action of seeing like a daily chore of cleaning a table and then you just see it take place on screen which is not something that as a viewer you would usually take in hmm, very proto Jean Dielman exactly there are some scenes though where we see them in the backyard uh, burning something could could it be a ritual of some kind walking around in like long flowing black clothes yeah could could they be witches who knows again they speak almost nothing eventually Gerard Depardieu shows up he is a washing machine salesman he talks he talks and he talks. This is the first time we've heard. It's like a one shot on Gerard Depardieu, just like riffing. <laughs> sustained talking. And it's very clear that he becomes more and more anxious and insecure because they give him nothing to grasp onto. He really is the audience surrogate because the movie <laughs> gives you very little to grasp onto. And you also feel anxious and insecure as you're watching it. All right, I'm going to get out of here. See you ladies later. I have heard the film described as a uh, feminist. If one were to do a feminist reading, well, I guess it could be anything you want. It well, could it's be... giving them power, giving their mm. uh, actions time on screen when usually that is kind of like pushed to the side. It, the man is the one who's the emotional one rather mm. than rather than them. They're in control and he becomes a flailing mess by virtue of just them not talking, them not giving him anything, which I guess they're expected to do. That would be the kind of facile feminist reading of the film. Um, but he, he shows up twice and he's clearly very intrigued by them. He follows 
uh, one of them around. And then the movie from a long shot ends. No credits. It's over. <laughs> Again, I think the vibes are impeccable. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, funny and strange. And I liked being in it. I mean, it's immaculately composed every shot. Very beautiful looking. And I, I'm again, I'm just I'm just kind of amused by how little the movie gives and what it chooses to give and what not to give. The only music on the soundtrack being a child doing piano lessons that play ad nauseum. Oh, and that's not everything, because, yeah, there are there are reports of like teenage killers on the lamb mm -hmm. are they related to the women we see is natalie granger the like demon child because there's references to that as well at the beginning yeah yeah we don't know i found out from reading jonathan rosenbaum's review that a producer of the film is luc moulet oh really yeah the new wave guy you and know what it's got a luc moulet vibe to it i know i know <laughs> i mean she shot that movie natalie granger in her own house so that is a Luc Moulet thing to do. <laughs> well, it's a nice house. Now let's talk about the big one, India Song. 19... <laughs> Sorry, I'm lifting it up so we can talk about it. <laughs> 1975. This one, I think it's an amazing film. It uh, is my uncle's, like one of his favorite movies. Really? Yep. Oh, my uncle had... Let's get very... him in here. I want to hear what he has to say about it. <laughs> he uh, did a documentary and he was like, hey, Justin, did you spot some of the references to some of my favorite films in it? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Man, there's, a, there's a reference to India Song. There's a reference to... <laughs> well, did he play that goddamn song <laughs> yeah, which i heard 500 times which was written movie. for this movie it's not a real song the india song of the title that characters talk about so what is this how is this film structurally built okay it takes place in a french embassy in calcutta in 1937 it strictly takes place in that embassy it is set in india we see nothing of india but, Not shot in India, though. Shot in France. Yeah, which which is fine, because mm. the whole point, really, is that we're stuck in this crumbling fossil of colonialism, and there is no relationship between this place and the country that it rules. So... There is no dialogue spoken on screen. Characters can have conversations and they're just standing, usually very still, this big crumbling mansion, and you'll hear the dialogue over the soundtrack. But... There is also four voices of people that are unidentified. One of whom is Marguerite Duras. You can tell because she's got the Patty and Salma Bouvier voice. <laughs> Commenting <laughs> on what's going on screen. Now, firstly, I thought of Mel Brooks, the critic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's just like voices being like, what's going on? Who is that person? <laughs> or what happened to this person? Yeah, very mystery science theater. In <laughs> <laughs> an original cut, she had little shadows <laughs> cut into yeah. the movie. Yeah, but so imagine that. Imagine that. But what you see on screen is Delphine's say rig as Anne-Marie the wife of the French ambassador, the bored wife of the French ambassador, walking very slowly through rooms, going from room to room. And the film does give you a lot of context if you hold on to it for like 20 minutes. If you pay close attention yes. to the dialogue. And the dialogue is also in multiple tenses that something could be said in the past, something could be in the present. I love this. Something could be in the future. So I believe you learned she killed herself very early on. And then you go through the story okay. and you meet other characters. Okay, that, I'm glad you said that because I actually missed that detail. Oh, that, did you? That, <laughs> yes. Because you got to be right into it as you're like these very still shots of rooms, oftentimes characters dancing or looking at themselves in the mirror and then it'll cut sometimes to outside. And you get like the camera tracking through like the garden. Yeah, but this place is basically falling apart. Mm -hmm. It's so absurdly beautiful, but ridiculously beautiful. Uh, and the emphasis. There's nothing to the beauty, there's no meaning behind the beauty. You 
get the sense that's like, oh, this is someone kind of going through their mind palace, that it is not a literalization of time moving, but of thought kind of clashing together. And in your thoughts, all of these characters, and there's not that many, it's just a number of men kind of filter in and out of these mostly static compositions. That's right, because she's bored in her life. She's bored in her marriage. There is the vice consul who is in love with her, and I don't believe they have an affair, but... Uh, Perhaps they do. (laughs) Maybe they do, but he's definitely driven insane. Her husband walks through the room. Yeah. (laughs) She lays down and then uh, undresses very early on in the film. And it's very much about the emptiness of this ritual and about the decadence of this colonial empire. But Um, I hope you like this one song they're going to play over and over and over again. You know, I mean, all kidding aside, it is a transfixing movie. It is. If if you work with it, it does. It is a movie that envelops you. millimeter at the Cinerama Dome. If if they showed this on film at the Lightbox, I'd go see it. I'm sure they have. I would love legally would, they must have at some point. I would love to have that experience. There's no context for why they're there, mm-hmm. why the Empire is still running, what what their job is, really. Yeah, yeah. Other than being, you know, consuls in India. And again, like her other films, it's immaculately shot, immaculately composed. Uh, Dave Kerr had a funny line where he said that uh, Marguerite Duras, the Busby Berkeley of structuralism, just in terms of the bodies and spaces moving through the frame, you know? Uh, Alain René is like, wait, what about me? <laughs> it should be noted as well is that a film like India Song or even Nathalie Granger, it is always in conversation with her novels. Like India Song was originally published as, I believe, a play before it became a movie version. And then there's that other level of distance that because no one is speaking on screen, all the dialogue was pre-recorded. Duras said that there wasn't a moment that was shot that wasn't backed by some kind of music or dialogue on set that was being played to put the people on screen in an emotional headspace. Mm-hmm. Like I say, uh, I'm a relative novice on this subject, but I am intrigued. The Mansion of India Song is a, a times horrible place to be in, but uh, there, there's no place like it. When are we going to get, you know, those screenings where you get to walk through the scene of the movie before you go and sit down oh, and like, watch the movie? Like, a, I'd love a VR immersive experience of for India, India Song. Song. Yeah. yeah. Jura, what's kind of fascinating is that She's a name that I know. We talked about earlier on that she's not really in the conversation, but even her published works like in English are very tough to get to. They're very like small presses that put them out, even though she was a big deal back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there will ever be like a rediscovery. I know that someone recently published a couple of years ago, like a collection of her writings because she did everything. She wrote like true crime. She wrote fiction. She wrote just kind of like basic journalism. Mm-hmm. And so she is one of those people that there. I feel like there is more to discover to like dig in to. And I wish there were better versions. But, you know, India Song, there is a remastered version out there. So if it interests you at all, like structuralism, the idea of like, you know, projecting yourself into a movie, I mean, you should check out Marguerite Duras. And my God, Hiroshima Mon Amour, if nothing else, I'm so glad I revisited that. I mean, Hiroshima Mon Amour, very easy to get your hands on. It's on the Criterion channel. <laughs> yeah. They put it out on Blu-ray. Criterion's like, yep, that's as far as we're going. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any letters this week? As per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. 
Tom, and our first letter is from Lila Rose. Hey guys, love your show and the many movies I would never have seen had you not recommended them. For example, Spree from 2020, which reminded me of another movie about a hopeless, clueless person going on a bungled quest in LA, Smiley Face from 2007 by Greg Araki, featuring Anna Faris as a doofus stoner who tries to fix one problem and gets a million more as a result. Most people I recommended it can't handle it because her fuck-ups are too cringely familiar, but I think that's what makes it good. I wondered if you'd ever do an episode on Araki himself, who also made a movie that I feverishly adored as an adolescent, and still do. Nowhere from 1997. It has aliens, frisky bisexual use, references to Warhol and Kafka, a cabinet of Dr. Caligari-level relationship between characters, costumes and the sets they're standing in, and the mother load of incredible one-liners like cram it, Furburger, and tell your mom thanks for the bitchin' wheels, bitch. <laughs> also, casting seems to be motivated by the postmodern thrill of seeing essentially every 90s heartthrob's name go by at once in the opening credits. Alternatively, I would love an episode about the so-called Asian bad boys of new queer cinema, Iraqi, John Mordesugu, and Roddy Bawaga. Well, of those three, the only one I'm really familiar with is Iraqi. Yep, same. And uh, I, I have big gaps in my Iraqi knowledge, but I do like him, you know? There was a time when I first moved to Toronto where it seems like everyone was talking about him, like Doom Generation, which is like, it's like a trauma movie, but you know... Not a trauma movie. I haven't seen that one in a while. The Living End is interesting. I really like Smiley Face, and I really liked that one, Kaboom, from a few years ago. Actually, that one's almost a decade old now. <laughs> and I feel like Kaboom is the last time he really entered the cultural consciousness. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure other people probably feel more strongly, but I don't hear people talk about Iraqi as much as they used to. He felt like a big 90s guy. Like, yeah. you know, him and other, who are like 90s, I wonder if his like, own played uh, at Sundance. I'm like, Hal Hartley. 90s always... guys like Todd Salon. Yeah, Todd kind of Salons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I do like Iraqi, though. I would like to, uh, I would love to do an episode on Iraqi. Yeah. It's on the list. We actually have a Canadian queer auteur that we're probably going to tackle before that, though. Oh, that's right. I would, I, I would be really interested in that. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. So you can send us letters on Porn Center Club Podcast at gmail.com. And what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Well, um, I think we've done a few Patreon episodes that we haven't talked about. Mm-hmm. We, we did one on Brian De Palma's Bonfire of the Vanities, and we've done one on uh, late period Bogdanovich. <laughs> yep. So we talked about the cat's meow in honor of Peter Bogdanovich, unfortunately, passing away. That's right. Do you think they buried him in his ascot? Um, yes, I do. I think they did. I can't imagine him like laying in the coffin there, ascotless. I right? can see his hand rising up, <laughs> say, saying, get me my ascot. So we talk about that at our Patreon. It's $5 and you can listen to it at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And we're trying to get to, you know, I think it's 550 Patreon subscribers at this point. And if we do this month, me and Will are going to do another marathon. And boy, do we have a marathon for you. It's a DVD of dog movies that I found. And these are like, the worst dog movies. Chili Dogs. Remember Snow Dogs? It's a ripoff of that movie, which I believe Steve Gutenberg's in it. Oh, man. We got Cop Dog. Ugh. You know. <laughs> Who's in Cop Dog? All uh, these have one celebrity voice. Yeah, I'm looking around my room being like, what? Or even them appearing in the film. Oh, I stand corrected. Chili Dogs actually features Leslie Nielsen, a much bigger star than Steve <laughs> Gutenberg. I believe the Goot is in Gold Retrievers, where it's like a dog in a casket of money we also have this is like the big get of the uh canine capers four pack karate dog featuring the voice of chevy chase yes excellent (laughs) and john void the villain does the dog do matrix style moves at the end of course he does we should do a marathon that's like late period chase oh god where it'll be a vegas vacation goose on the loose (laughs) 
what else? Uh, Money Madness, that one. What about the Funny one Money, he did called. that was, I think it was like the sequel kind of to Christmas Vacation. I believe Fred Olin Ray directed it. There's Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure. No, not that one. He doesn't appear in that one. So yeah. Oh, oh, I know what you're thinking of. You're thinking of Christmas in Vermont. Oh, that's probably what it Which is. Which I have seen. It's, <laughs> okay. it's a Hallmark ripoff. <laughs> It's fucking bad. <laughs> so, but first, we need to get to that sweet 550 number. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, you're missing all the gold there. We talk for like 20 to 25 minutes about every topic. And I don't feel like we're going to do Brian De Palma anytime soon. So, yeah. if you want to hear us talk about him, you got to check it out there. There's a lot of Brian De Palma on the Patreon at this Yeah, point. we did Wise Guys. <laughs> did we do The Untouchables? I can't remember. Maybe, because I think you had never seen the movie and That's you saw right. it all of a sudden. So you're God, like, now I'm in my memory palace trying to figure <laughs> yeah. things out. Out. as we're slowly wandering through your house i should say i just noticed this we don't have as many apple podcast reviews or ratings as patreon subscribers so come on get on there if you're oh, a patreon yeah. subscriber please like us rate us review us say nice things about us i need it yeah will has had a very tough last couple of months yeah so. and, and what, 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 <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna blackmail people into emotionally reviewing. blackmail them i need i need strangers to write on the internet what a good guy i am and justin yeah oh yeah and justin too so you can put it together you know a nice five star really helps we want to get up those charts we've been kind of coasting for too long i think like, i think so let, let let's you know put the pedal to the metal get people out there way early on in our run we had a contest where like someone drew us on a banana and they won a prize oh now yeah than that, that was that was a contest that was do something to publicize yeah. slash advertise the important cinema club and the winner that was angie right yes. yeah she, she drew something on she a drew banana. us on a banana which that was early days you could do anything you would have won so. i mean god love it it was great but i think we can do better <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> so maybe a command we haven't done a contest in ages but first let's get to that um canine capers number and you can listen to the podcast people have asked me like where's your american pie podcast and i said sorry you had to be a patreon subscriber lasted a month then it was gone so get in on it what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we are doing something a little bit different. We are talking about a literary adaptation. There are many ways. Uh, now, nah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to do a clever intro to this. The definition of literary <laughs> is or adaptation. We are going to be talking about the Scottish play. That's right, Macbeth. <gasps> you said it. And we're going to be talking about three film adaptations of Macbeth. Joel Cohen because mm-hmm. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet either. Uh, Polanski. Definitely Polanski. And what if we did, ah, it's a little new, but remember there was that Fassbender one that came out? Uh, oh. That was like the act. Did you see it? No, it, sound, it looks bad though. Yeah. <laughs> the director of Assassin's Creed. How can it be bad? We should maybe do that. I mean, I'm sure we'll address the other ones. I mean, like, we could do like a really tough one. Like we could do like Bellatar's like two take version of Macbeth. So that one I've seen. Oh, there it or not. you go. Yeah. It's good. Should I'm sure we, there's like a dusty Russian version too. That's like three hours long. I mean, we'll talk. I'm sure we'll address like Orson Welles, Akira yeah. Kurosawa. We actually technically did Orson Welles when we did an episode on Poverty Row, I believe. And I believe we talked about throwing a blood on our like. <laughs> oh, boy. Don't listen to that episode. episode number five or whatever the kurosawa one which is a, which is bad we got like 15 minutes out of kurosawa and then we were out of there we were not pros yet no now we are did you ever take a shakespeare class in university i did yes and did you get anything out of it were they like hey will 
this is like the Pulp Fiction of the generation. <laughs> they did not frame it that way, no. Mm. But yes, I enjoyed the Shakespeare class. It was nice to do. It was fun to do. It was fun to learn about the historical context behind these plays. You know, this is continuing, um, you know, my push to do uh, episodes that will justify taking classes like, ah, uh, we read the Canterbury Tales. Why don't we do our Canterbury Tales episode? Oh, I'd love to. I mean, you got Pasolini. You got, there's got to be some other ones, So right? there's Pasolini and then there are all those Italians who ripped Sex them off. comedies? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. Pasolini, Joe DiMaggio, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Let's really get to the bottom of the Canterbury Tales. So next week it is Shakespeare's Macbeth. I did consider maybe like, will I make Will suffer through like Kenneth Branagh's um, Hamlet? Hamlet? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That film has such a crazy cast. <laughs> like four hours long and isn't uh yeah, it's the complete uncut text will and it's like robin williams as the grave digger and stuff yeah like that. i think billy crystal is one of the grave diggers as well uh jack lemon saying like there's something rotten in the state of denmark <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so uh you know once the Macbeth episode just brings us to the number one charts on itunes then we got to turn into just shakespeare's <laughs> just watching the tempest that version with russell brand that was <laughs> made a couple of years back yeah or um let me think of another obscure shakespeare adaptation you know a Macbeth that you probably haven't thought about is the Australian one remember it was like modern day Macbeth he's got like a machine gun there was one with Sam Worthington that's the one I'm thinking of yeah so I I saw that one and it's bad yeah I mean listen most of these are bad right (laughs) so that's what we're doing next week until then my name's Justin the Clue I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening I went to Stratford Ontario to see Shakespeare plays of course right well, Stratford is the home of the world-famous Stratford Theatre Festival. I look forward, after our Macbeth episode, they bring us up on stage to do, like, a live podcast about Shakespeare. <laughs> yep, at the Festival Theatre, the stage where Christopher Plummer once once roamed. Where Colum Fior reigns king. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went to Stratford, Ontario in the winter, you know, just for a little R&R, and I stumbled across this little micro-cinema in downtown called The Little Prince. It's a, yeah, like a micro-cinema, sort of a, like, 30 or 40-seat theatre that you can book as well as an old-timey sweet shop in the front you know my partner and i thought oh this is whimsical and fun why don't we uh why don't we do something here so we booked the micro cinema and and you brought your dvd of behind the green door and you're like (laughs) now we can (laughs) watch this movie the way it was meant to be viewed now we we wanted to watch something old it felt like a place to watch an old movie and we watched my man godfrey which is a movie that i had never seen before Mm -hmm. and have you ever seen it you know what i've seen it once and i believe it was at the waterfront on one of those big inflatable screens oh Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. When it happened, I enjoyed it very much. I thought it was fantastic. Like, I really think it's one of my favorites of that kind of movie. Those, like, 1930s uh, rich people in penthouse comedies. Mm -hmm. It's about a rich family, a sort of uh, bumbling idiot rich family who recruit a forgotten man who's living in the dump. That's what That was a phrase that was circulating in the Depression, the forgotten man. You know what those films are? The Depression comedy films. But when we say Depression, you think it's about, you know, people in the Depression. Nope, it's all about rich people. That's what you want to see on screen well it's true and it's yeah, beautiful immaculate sets and yeah they get this guy who lost all his money in the depression to be their butler and i mean i'm not going to bother saying the plot because it's not about the plot it's about like the funny things that happen in it but claudette colbert is in it and very she's funny. amazing it's not like it's some communist movie or anything but what's great about it is it is more class conscious than like class is at the center of it mm-hmm. and much more class conscious than just about any like hollywood movie i've seen in I don't know, 20 years? Like, come on. What was the experience of sitting there in a cinema and, like, watching it? Did you feel it felt different? That, like, all your attention was on the screen? Did you guys still have your phones out and you were going through stuff? No, put my phone away and it was so great. Mm. I saw... 
licorice pizza about two weeks ago as well in a theater because theaters were closed in Ontario for like two months. So I didn't see licorice pizza until two Only weeks two ago. Only two months? It felt, felt like a year they were closed. Yeah. And seeing licorice pizza, I'd forgotten what the experience was like. It's like I so rarely submit to something just like I'm so rarely like overpowered by a movie like this just mm. in a theater. Just like. And you s- saw it on 70 millimeter. Oh, no, you saw it in Kingston, right? So I or- saw it in Kitchener on just like ordinary, ordinary <laughs> digital yeah. projection. But- <laughs> Probably too dark. <laughs> but but yeah, it's an I mean, folks, going to the movies, going to the theater is a good experience because you just submit to a movie. You have nothing to look at but the movie. And it's great. I love it. I recommend it. Going back to class conscious comedies. What was the last like big budget class conscious comedy that there was out there? A little movie called Jackass Forever. <laughs> Forever? I think. Okay. Oh, which, by the way, I also saw. Yeah. Have well, you, seen you went it? Jackass Forever, then Licorice Pizza. Your priorities are. <laughs> no, I did not see it. It's I'm funny. sure I want to see it. Uh, I would want to see it maybe with somebody else. Did you go by yourself? I went by myself. Yeah, yes. but your laughter filled the, the theater just like during the Brothers Grimsby. <laughs> I did, echoed off the walls. I did laugh a lot, I have to say. Uh, we did a Jackass episode, and I remember we were a little bit negative upon the first movie, right? Yeah, we were negative about the... We weren't really... We were just kind of like, it's kind of formless. It's not that... Like, we remembered more big bits than there actually was in the movie. I just think... So I can't remember what we said in that Patreon episode. I remember that it did get people like very, very rarely people are like, you're wrong or blah, people blah, blah. were very disappointed. Yes. In us. <laughs> and I think I think for me at that time, just watching the movie on my laptop, mm. I felt this is very unpleasant. Like this looks like it really hurts. But, uh, you know, the new one really excites me is I love it because they're old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that adds so much value to it. But I also think seeing it theatrically helps, too. When you were overpowered by that 40 foot screen, when all you have to look at is steve-o's balls covered <laughs> covered with bee stings 